And I was just so fascinated with how many people it took to put together this sort of production. And that started the curiosity that I just have never to this day been able to attain about uh, what it takes to put together a show and then what it takes to put together a music tour. And it took me many, many, many years, decades to get there. But 17 years later, uh, I was working on arena sized tours uh, because I had made that decision that night that I was going to work on some sort of touring situation. Hi, I'm Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Hey, everybody, Nick Ninton here, and welcome back to Now to Next, uh, my live stream podcast where I bring some of the brightest minds to you to talk about what's happening right now, which is always interesting, and also what we should look to next. Uh, Today, I've got a great guest for you today. Uh, Arlen Hamilton, I'm going to read a little bit about her before I bring her on. Uh, Arlen Hamilton is a venture capitalist, author, and the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital. She is the first black queer woman to create her own venture capital fund, and she did it with no investing experience, no college degree, and while homeless. Today, Backstage Capital has raised more than $10 million and invested in more than 130 startup companies led by underestimated founders. There's a big underestimated theme, which I love here. We're going to talk about today. In May 2020, Hamilton released her first book called It's About Damn Time, How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage, which shares her personal story of entrepreneurship and experience in the world of venture capital, an industry that is predominantly male and only 2% black. Before founding Backstage Capital, Arlen worked as a music tour manager and founded an independent magazine called Interlude. She also ran a wildly popular blog from 2006 to 2012 called Your Daily Lesbian Moment. She wrote nearly 1,600 posts, that's a lot, over those years, and her blog has been visited more than 2.1 million times. Today, Arlen has a podcast called Your First Million, and Backstage Capital has its own podcast called Bootstrapped VC. Uh, She also runs an investing syndicate, BackstageCrowd.com, where you can invest alongside her, which we'll talk about. She's been featured on Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40 list, Vanity Fair Magazine's The 2018 New Establishment list, and she was the first black woman who was not an athlete or entertainer to be featured on the cover of Fast Company magazine in October of 2018. Arlen is challenging entrepreneurship and her own story is the key to why she started her venture capital fund with no connections while she herself was underestimated. And now she is on a mission to help other underestimated people find success. Arlen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It is great to have you. So you were born in Mississippi, but quickly moved to Houston, Texas, and eventually to Dallas. So Texas, most of your life, it sounds like. Is that correct? That's right. And in fact, you know that story better than I had up until recently, because I did. My mother told me very recently that we moved to Houston first before Dallas. I didn't know that. So the fact that you figured that out, <laughs> really interesting. Well, we, we got some good people uh, working over here with us. So tell me about growing up Arlen. So what was the first indication? You obviously have an insane drive, right? So we'll get into that. But what was, tell me what you were like as a kid. Uh, I was a little odd, I think. I mean, I look back on it and, and think I would have liked me, you know, um, definitely it was really tall, really fast. I was the tallest kid in my class or second tallest like by the fourth grade. And, and, and that was always something, um, a little clumsy, 
definitely wasn't into sports, although everybody assumed I liked basketball because of my height and everything. Uh, but uh, mostly I was I was just a little bit off the beaten path. I, I liked a lot of different types of people and a lot of different types of music and movies. And I had always been very uh, interested in what the world was like rather than what was right in front of me. And even as a, I mean, six, seven year old, I was holding office hours on the playground talking to people about their lives. <laughs> so I was a little odd. I wore six watches in the third grade at all, you know, put to different time zones because I thought, how cool is it that people in another country have, it's a different time there. So I've always been sort of drawn in one way or another to other people. At the same time, I had a sense of humor about like observing people um, that sometimes got me into trouble and always asked questions, never took what was in the book for the final word on anything and had a, kind of like a mixture between just being very friendly and, and, and loving, but also kind of being a bully just because I was a little odd. You got that. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. So the, the, <laughs> the watches, so you learn there are other time zones, which makes sense. I mean, my daughter, when I, whenever I travel, she always wants to know what time is it and, and what are they doing there? Uh, you know, she's nine. And so that's, that's interesting. Did you, what made it, you want to know all the time zones at the same time or six of them. What made you want to do that? Was it the symmetry of three watches on each wrist or what was it? I still don't know exactly what it was, but I do remember we had encyclopedias at home and it all, you know, I was, I just was fascinated by encyclopedias and that's where I figured out or read about time zones. And I had been reading since I was probably four or five, very sophisticated uh, ways just because I was taught really early so I was just really uh, fascinated just by the idea of time zones in general. And then I thought, like, I would go to school and I would just kind of, my imagination would take me to different, to Africa, to Hawaii, to Australia, to Asia. And I would just say, I wonder what time it is there. I wonder what time it is right now. I wonder where the sun is right now. And instead of wondering, I said, well, I'm going to go and, you know, I would go to a, a gumball machine and see a watch and try to get that watch. Or I'd, I'd beg my mom for like a $5 Velcro watch, you know, to add to the collection. And after a while, I mean, altogether probably wasn't more than $20 on my arms, but, but I was, uh, it was my way of, it was sort of settling for me and, uh, it, it kind of calmed me down because then I wouldn't have to ask. I could just look down on my arm. And I'd know what time it was because I would um, not only would I have them set, but I'd have something on the, the design of it or something would give me an indication of where it was. Like palm trees was Hawaii. Uh, you know, there was a giraffes was Africa, you know, parts of Africa. Uh, so it wasn't like I had this very, you know, it wasn't like Doc Brown or anything. I wasn't some sort of genius at the time, but it was it really was just a little bit, just a crazy amount of uh, curiosity. I love that. It's funny. The most successful people I've interviewed across the board, the one word that comes up more than any other word is curious and curiosity. Mm. I mean, from Larry King to Dean Kamen to, I mean, I could almost name it to a, a to a person. They all think one of their greatest traits in life was that was very underappreciated uh, in school mm. was being super curious. Yeah. I find yeah. it interesting that where we're at right now. Cause obviously when, you know, we're, we're the same age about, I just turned 40 in January. So we grew up uh, parallel in, in different cities, but the thing I find so interesting right about now is that education has just been sort of this thing we were fed 
we were fed like here's how you have to learn and you know in our day and age certainly i mean homeschool was super weird back then i mean it's it's become pretty mainstream now back then it's like you're doing what and uh you know police would almost go check on a child to make sure something weird wasn't going on and we used to have to deal with the things they gave us so if if the best math teacher they have sucks this is just the math teacher that you get. And I'm very intrigued by this whole new world of um, not a teacher not having to control, you know, 30 ducklings in one room because, mm-hmm. I mean, I can't fault a teacher for finding, uh, you, you said your label is disruptive. I was talkative or, you know, too rambunctious or whatever. I can't blame them because that system is tough. I mean, you put 30, yeah. five, six, seven, eight, 30, my oldest son's 15, put 30, 15 year olds in a room. I don't want to be in it. So I'm, yeah. I'm intrigued to see the big disruptions in education. Obviously, we're going to get we'll go more back to the story. But as you're investing in startups, are you seeing anything really cool and sort of disruptive education as you're looking? Yeah, I think uh, what speaks to me prob- probably the most and it's more, more personal than anything uh, is, is online courses. Um, I have my own. I was able to put together a, a kind of an academy and starting in April for, for a few reasons and mostly to answer questions that founders had over and over again. But the idea that people are able to just sign on whenever they want to consume it at a pace that they that's comfortable for them. You know, I definitely made sure to create it with, with different people in mind. So it wasn't all one thing because you have that opportunity these days to sort of create the thing that you always wish you had. So that's when, if you're starting a company, you usually start a company, usually started at least uh, at the initial point of what would I have wanted these other companies I worked for to be like? And that's, you know, but so with this, these courses, um, even if you're uh, targeting older people, it's, it, it's actually really freeing. And so I love company startups who speak to that. I love companies and startups who speak to uh, autonomous learning and um, and also and everything's always going to be about connecting to me connections to me, but that can be a one-on-one connection. So yeah, I think Teachable is what I use for my online course, uh, how to raise capital from scratch. And but there are plenty of those types. You know, you have your your uh, creative lives, Chase Jarvis. You have your master class. Uh, you have uh, Be Great TV, which is coming out soon. It, it's just really exciting. And I know that it is um, also not super exciting for a lot of parents right now who are lost and worried about what happens with their children's education in the, in the age of COVID and the age of not knowing exactly what the plan is. But I think in that chaos and in that concern, there can always be an opportunity. I totally agree. Uh, another thing that I, we got to talk a little bit about, we got to uh, trade notes. Uh, you would sell candy in school. You'd buy it uh, at Sam's Club and sell candy. I did the same. What was your best seller? Do you remember what your most, your best selling candy was? My best seller were, was both uh, a choking hazard and terrible for your teeth, uh, fireballs. Really? That's, wow. Yeah. Yeah, because they were hot and then they would get, you know, really sugary. Yeah. And. Uh, they were an experience. It was, an, you know, you, you, when you dined at my uh, uh, restaurant, you didn't just eat. You you had an experience. And <laughs> that's what the third grade. And I still to this day can't believe that those teachers let me do that. 
fire. I mean, that's a choking hazard waiting to happen. <laughs> yes, uh, but we made that. An extra ten dollars a week in my pocket, so I appreciate them. That's awesome. Yeah, I sold uh, the one I did mostly in middle school, and I, I would sold tear jerkers and uh, oh, airheads. Yeah. Airheads and tear jerkers were my yeah. my jam. So uh, good that's to know that great. candy sales is where we all start. Um, I'm hungry. <laughs> nice. And so <laughs> you started. Well, you started in the music industry, and, and so I've been in the music industry for 20 years, which is a fascinating business, by the way. It is, I think it's the hardest business I've ever been involved in. It just seems to be more difficult than about anything else. What got you, what was your first love of music? What got you into it? First love ha had to be the, when I was 13 years old and went to the Janet Jackson concert, first concert I'd ever been to. And on top of it being my first concert, it was, I, I was in the front row. I ended up in the front row. I had gone, I'd wanted to go for weeks and months and my mom wasn't able to afford a ticket. And then she surprised me with the ticket. And then I won another ticket on the radio and all of these, you know, things happened. Um, but I ended up going by myself and with my mom sitting out in the parking lot, she didn't want to come in. That's another story uh, about, you know, crowd. People ask me that, what happened to that second ticket? Well, my mom has like a fear of crowds in some way. So she didn't want to be there, but she wanted to be right on standby if I needed her. So I went in and somebody handed us front row tickets. People are sitting next to, uh, they handed us three of us front row tickets. And that changed everything for me for so many reasons. One of them just being this sort of confidence and watching this black woman command a crowd of 13, 15,000 people or more uh, from all walks of life. That was really eye-opening for me, and it was really inspiring to me because I was watching a hero who, Janet was a hero and still is. I was watching a hero just kick butt, and it was just so much fun. But I was also really taking in, even at 13, I was looking back and saying, man, this is this is my ideal. I'm, a, I'm an idealist. I want all of us to be getting along, and I want us to be working together and collaborating. And, and with a leader who is a Black woman, how cool is that? You know, and so it sort of set me on this path in general of knowing that I could do anything, I could be anything. She was the equivalent, I guess, to your, your football quarterback or your Superman that a lot of white men grow up seeing images of themselves. And then on top of that, I just was, I found myself watching her backing uh, musicians and watching the people who were like changing the sets more than I was watching her at some points. And I was just so fascinated with how many people it took to put together this sort of production. And that started the curiosity that I just have never to this day been able to attain about what it takes to put together a show and then what it takes to put together a music tour. And it took me many, many, many years, decades to get there. But 17 years later, uh, I was working on arena-sized tours uh, because I had made that decision in that night that I was going to work on some sort of touring situation. Uh, that's crazy. One of the things that you talk about a lot is is the support of your mom, which I think is, you know, in, in my life, my parents hugely supportive. I shudder to think that there's so many people who don't have someone like that in their life to help them see what their future could be and encouraging them. Uh, interesting question, but what, what do you say to someone who doesn't have that? Where do you think they should turn? Uh, we both would agree they need that person in their life. Where do you think people should turn to find that sort of influence if they're not getting it at home? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you that. Uh, and I, I say as much as I can, I, I shout out to my mom and, um, 
everything that she went through to get me here. I recently bought her a car. I haven't bought myself a car, but I bought her a car uh, during COVID and kind of lift her spirits. And just because she's always wanted this car. And to me, she was the one, it, she kind of bought the car because if it weren't for her, I wouldn't have been able to be in the position, you know, to even dream as big. So definitely shout out to my mom. But I think a lot of the, the journey has to be internal anyway. So much of it feels like an island and so much of it is an island and you can't rely on any one person to either make or break you. So if you have the flip side, like my father and I didn't have a good relationship and for so long I blamed him for many things. But then at some point I had to say, he, I, how long am I going to do that? And I, and I, and I kind of had to have that moment where I broke from that. So I think if you don't have it necessarily at home, which I, which I do feel for you because it's so wonderful to have a mother like I have. Another thing you can do is like look to those mentors who aren't necessarily in the room with you, but who have kind of made their entire lives about helping other people and mentoring other people from afar. I have, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to Oprah, audio, video interviews, how many times I listened to Will Smith, audio interviews, video interviews, pumping me up. Music has done the same. Uh, and I have a friend, one of my best friends uh, says that, you know, television raised her in, in a lot of ways, but not in that kind of like just kind of blind watching the television and just whatever, frying your brain, but more in like those of my different families, you know, that I got to participate in. And um, I just think if you can sort of craft your boardroom for yourself, which I've done multiple times without the people now today. I can pick up a phone and call certain people and that's really cool. But for the first 80, 85% of my life, I, it was in here. <laughs> it was me saying, well, these people are part of my boardroom already. They just don't know it. I love that. And yes, one of the reasons I make the documentaries that I make is because I want to inspire, I mean, the next generation, but also people who are sitting at a desk, you know, depressed right now, but they don't have access to the people that you know you and I have found a way to get access to. I think my, my whole goal is I think back to being a kid in school, we were immigrants and we all this stuff, but you know, I, I had people who for whatever reason didn't believe in me. And I just, it drove me crazy. They didn't really, I was like, you don't even know who I am. And I found that I couldn't get a seat at certain tables. Like I just couldn't get a seat at the table because I didn't have, you know, the right amount of money or I wasn't old enough for a lot of my life. And as, as an entrepreneur, I just wasn't old enough. Um, I didn't have, my parents didn't have connections with lawyers as I was starting my music career. So I had to try to, I tried to, I had to find virtual mentors, just like you said, and I, and books are amazing for that. Now we've got audible, which is amazing for audiobooks. And I've used the documentary format to show and share, you know, stories of people who you may or may not ever have the opportunity to be in the same proximity of, but I do know from my career, having learned first in books and now in person from people who are uh, immensely not only talented, but have depth to them. It's just such a mm-hmm. gift that I find, uh, man, if there's any way I can share that, I'm going to share that. And, and, you know, we, we choose to do it through documentary. So I, I love that answer. Uh, so you decide you're out on the road, you, you, you get to the point where uh, you're producing tours for major artists like CeeLo Green, Jason Derulo, Tony Braxton, you're, you're doing the thing. And then you start hearing about people investing in apps and Silicon Valley and celebrities. Tell me that story and how you got interested in investing. And I'll be very clear. I was part of production teams for these, for these artists. And uh, every time somebody describes it, they say it a different way. Um, 
and, and I always have to come back because I know there's so many people involved who are like calling me up. They're like, Arlen, <laughs> when did you be, when did you get on stage? Because last time yeah. I heard you were in the song. <laughs> Got it. it really is. Was I was a production coordinator and then a road manager for a lot of these artists, and and it was a lot of fun. Um, and taught me a lot for this next stage, stage in my life. But I was on the road. I had gotten myself from this 13-year-old's uh, vision of what the dream was. I'd gotten myself there, essentially, uh, and was on still on the path to what my uh, my big goal was. I was going to be uh, a tour manager for some of the biggest artists in the world. That was just my big goal, and I was on my way there. And it was around 30-ish, 31, which would have been 2011 or 12, is when I started really dialing in on startups and seeing um, people like Ellen DeGeneres and Justin Bieber, his manager, and Lady Gaga and her manager, Trey Carter, different people who, and Ashton Kutcher, I think, I don't know if I mentioned before, but um, these different people who are either celebrities or they were in that world they were making these investments, these smaller investments uh, relatively in a place called Silicon Valley for startups. And I was just curious about it, not for any kind of money-making thing. It was more like, why are people who are so interesting, in my view, interested in this? I kind of like follow that you follow the money sort mm -hmm. of thing and watch uh, what they do sort of path. And I took a look at that I learned more and more about Airbnb's story, about Warby Parker's story, um, and then, of course, Twitter and Facebook and all of these things started to make more sense to me. These things that I was using on a day-to-day -day basis, but really understood where they started. And I said, wait, that is actually, that's me. That's my world. I'm, I belong there because that's what I felt like since I was a child selling this candy. Uh, or, or painting numbers on, on the sidewalks for people's homes so the pizza delivery people can see them. This felt really like my world. I just hadn't been able to articulate who I was or what this was and this feeling. Uh, so in many ways, I, I call it it's like my second time coming out. It was like the second time of understanding who I was. And I said, well, I'm going to start a, I'm going to start a company. Then. I want to start a tech company and I'll be the CEO. Most likely I will see how you do that. And so I started all this research. How do you start a company? Okay. The team and the, you find the product that's your passion. I had an idea for that. And then I said, well, I, I don't have any money. I was completely broke, even though I was on the road. It was, you know, you, you only get so many weeks a year on the road and it's, there's no, there's no union or anything like that. It is not glamorous. It. Let's clear that up right yeah. now. It is not glamorous. But uh, but I was, I was you know happy in many other ways. So I started researching. Okay, how do I raise capital for this? What are angel investors? What are what are venture capitalists? What's this word? You know, what does this all mean? The more I researched, the more I understood. Okay, this is very specific. Um, I get it. I'm gonna I'm gonna go this route. And I started talking to founders of startups and of all backgrounds. And I started seeing a pattern and the pattern was really clear to me. And it was also backed up with different pieces of data that I would come across. And that is like the, the truth of the matter is, is that 90% or so of venture capital, which is meant to back these new early stage innovative companies from all over the world and the country, 90% of that capital was going to, and still to this day, a little bit has changed a little bit to white men. And I thought, well, okay, first of all, let's just be clear. That does not mean that every white man walks into a room and says, like, hand me a bag of money. Obviously, that's not how it works. But those statistics are saying that nine, nine out of 10 people who do get funding are white men. So where does that leave women, 
across the board. So your wives, <laughs> like where does that leave white women? Where does that leave women across the board of color? Anybody of color in the United States, where does that leave us if that those are the stats? And so it just didn't make any sense to me. And that's when the little light bulb came on where I said, well, okay, a couple of things going on here. One is I've figured this out. So I could probably hack my way into fund raising funds now because I understand what's broken and and where, you know, how this works now, because I've taken a look under the hood. But the other thing was, well, what is the point of getting venture capital as me if, as a gay Black woman, beating the odds, if my sisters and brothers aren't going to be able to come along with me? And then even more so, like my kind of competitive mind, where is my competition going to be? What's going to happen two years from now when I go to raise more? Is it going to be more of the same? What am I basically, in other words, what am I buying a ticket to? Why, what, why do I want to go towards this place that isn't inclusive? So that's when I made this decision over a little bit of time thinking about it, that I'm set, instead of starting a company with one product, my company would be a, a fund that would invest in several other companies. And those companies would be everybody who was being overlooked, black people, brown people, women across the board, LGBTQ, et cetera. And I started with those three because that's how I, how I identified. So women I identified, LGBTQ I identified, certainly people of color I identified first and foremost. And that was going to be, my thesis was going to be around they're being overlooked. We're being overlooked. We can do so much more with far less because we've proven that. Imagine what we do when we have more, when we're on equal footing. Went out with that and uh, haven't looked back. So I want to hear what happens next. So you have the bright idea. And so often we have the bright idea. And then we realize there's there's a lot of work that has to go to making that idea reality. So I, I understand you fly to a conference in San Francisco to, to I, don't know, I believe on a one-way ticket. I mean, tell me about your thought process. Yeah, there's, there's a lot in between. Uh, years went by. I mean, years uh, from that 2011, 2012, uh, it took me three and a half years to get a first $25,000 check. And every day of that, those three and a half years, I was working on this in some way or, way or, some way or another. But in 2015, after having reached out to people for years by email. I was in Houston. I couldn't afford a plane ticket at the time um, for any of that part. I had different, um, been in different rows of, uh, of homelessness and, and uh, housing insecurity, food stamps, different things. And that had been, that had followed me from my twenties and gone through all of that and had met a lot of people and done a lot of research. So that was very important, that network that I started to build, not just of investors, but of the founders, they became the most important part of the, of the story. That network has really paid off for me today of founders. But I was having these conversations, meeting with people, trying to get make ends meet. I was trying to get work. I was still on the road for some of it. What, you know, making it work. And then I found out about a two week boot camp for like early for new investors, basically, or for investors to learn about Silicon Valley. And it was twenty, it was eighteen thousand dollars for two weeks. And it was going to be held at Stanford. And I had maybe eighteen dollars to my name to be like really transparently. But I just I kind of put it in my mind, I'm going there. So first thing I did was I got I scored myself like a half off that they were giving that you could get yourself nominated for from three different people that so I had to like build, find these three people and nominated, uh, got nominated. 
uh, for like 50% off. Then I did a crowdfunding friends and family, which was really, uh, I was really appreciative of that for like 3000. Then the rest of it, uh, you know, another 6,000 or so, uh, I kind of put myself on a payment plan with them, got myself over there, plane ticket one way. And I had an Airbnb for two weeks that I couldn't, that I, I could only afford a week of. <laughs> so like the Airbnb host actually like said, like they tracked me down. They're like, yeah, you need to pay this, but they were cool about it. So, so many things happened in between, but went to that course, ended up meeting a woman named Susan Kimberlin at that course, which is like a boot camp, teaches you everything about uh, being an investor. I, I think the, what I got the most out of that was just the proximity. Everybody in that class was rich. None of them invested except for Susan Kimberlin, but the, actually, I should say this, Meredith did invest uh, early on, but Susan Kimberlin made the first like investment in backstage capital. and. It took that even took three or so months of, of us talking to each other. But at that point, I had I had been doing working on it for more than three years. I knew exactly what I wanted. And yes, it was a lot of hard work. And yes, it was a lot of um, there were a lot of down days. But I knew I knew 110 percent that this needed to exist. I knew backstage was a foregone conclusion. It was not anything that was a maybe anymore at that point, 2015. So September 15th, which is we're celebrating five years, September 15th. So September 15th, 2015, Susan wired her first uh, amount of money to us and we became a real fun. Like we became a real boy. (laughs) That's that's great. And and even in between there, I I understand you were living at the airport for a while there in San Francisco. I lived at the airport off and on from May to September of that year. Um, not every day. I was. I, I had uh, booked a, an indie tour in the middle of that, but uh, a lot of it, a lot of days, too many. And um, I, yeah, it sucked. I don't know what, <laughs> what else to say about it. It was really, it sucked a lot, and it was, it was dehumanizing. I felt like because I didn't know Susan was going to make an investment. I didn't know anybody was, and I wasn't trying to go around Silicon Valley begging people for money because I'm homeless, I was trying to like start a company. So I didn't tell anybody about it. And some days I just, I was like, maybe I've reached the end of this. Maybe I, I, there is no way, way to do this. And, um, but I kept going and I'm glad I did. Absolutely. It, it's oftentimes in those moments where you realize that there is no other option than to keep going. And, and I found that that's what's kept me in some of the, the hardest times there. Uh, keeping that going. All right. So let's, let's hop a bit to your book. So, uh, you published a book just a couple months ago. Uh, it's about damn time, uh, which is a great title. I love it. Uh, and and it, the book is part business guide, part self-help and part memoir. Uh, and I I love that you are now helping share these these principles, because I can tell you, like, I've been an entrepreneur most of my life. I've now run my business that I have now. This is what I'm in for 15 years. But I still don't really understand. I mean, the world of investing really frightens me because I I know so few people who are qualified to run a business <laughs> like and I don't mean like school qualification. I mean, like, I don't I just feel like I've seen what happens when the going gets tough and it always does. And I'm like, man, what I, is that the person I'm going to, you know, if I'm if I'm in a jungle for two weeks by myself, is that the person I want to be with? And that's how yeah. I sort of think about uh, startup founders. Tell us. I mean, give us some secrets. What do you look for when you're in, in, well, when you're investing in business? 
Well, I understand that. Yeah, I think you, there is a certain risk tolerance that in general you'd have to have to be an investor in this space. Um, and this, especially if you're an angel investor, if it's your own capital, or if you really, like I do, have a strong sense of understanding of uh, wielding other people's capital. And then, uh, but the, so there's a certain risk tolerance that just has to be there or it, it gets really scary for you. What I do is I feel, I think of, think of myself as like a, a, a heat seeker for the people who I would want to be in a, in that situation, in, you know, in these dire situations. In. And it's, I don't always get it right. I, I certainly, there's no like perfect way to do this. And there's no, no one has it all figured out. Even the people who think they do, or they've made a lot of money because they were right one time, they don't really have it figured out. We're, they're lying to you or themselves. But the whole point of it is like, if you're 10% right and that means that you're able to help catalyze something that re- goes really well and something that changes the lives of thousands or millions of people, which we have the ability to do as startup founders and startup catalyzers. If it's almost like, you know, uh, the upside is so worth the downside. And uh, so I, I just look for people who remind me of myself, which is what a lot of investors do. The thing the difference is a lot of investors are, Great white men from affluent backgrounds and who have a safety net. So they're looking for these guys who who look right to them on paper. Uh, oh, you went to Stanford. Oh, you you remind me of Mark Zuckerberg or all oh, this, et cetera. I'm doing the same thing, but I have a different pattern that I'm matching. Uh, I'm made of, of different stuff. And so when it comes to like my, my background, we're all certainly equal. And um, I, I don't know that the... the uh, I need to know that statistic of how similar everybody is. It's like like 99.999% or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I look for people who, who are going, who are just going for it. People who are not tolerant of mediocrity. Like I am allergic to it. I look for people who want to leave an impression on this world in some way or another. And it doesn't all have to be like an impact investment, but it has to have some sort of impact in brightening someone's day or changing someone's life, whatever that extreme is. And on top of that, getting to know people over time, you, you start to understand, are they made for this decades-long commitment that most of these companies are for, these startups are? Or are they doing this because they saw it in a TV show or they read a headline about somebody raising a million dollars? And they think that's the quickest way to get out of their current situation. Those aren't really exciting to me, no matter who you are. On top of all of this, I get to meet with thousands of black and brown founders, women founders, LGBTQ founders, and just be a small part of their world. And when you're around people, we talked about mentorship before. The mentorship doesn't have to like go in one direction. I mean, when you're around people and you're around that inventiveness and, and all the time, like I'm, there's not a day that goes by where I'm not learning about something. It's really exciting and it's, it's thrilling, you know, and it's intoxicating. The key is to keep sober enough where through all of that, you're also saying, okay, what do I feel with my sets of ideas and, and my thesis and these different standards that I have, what do I think has the best chance of pulling this off? And you kind of go for it and you you get conviction around it. So it can be as an observer, that's why we have the syndicate, backstagecrowd.com is a syndicate that allows 
anybody, uh, almost anybody to invest alongside of us. So we, you kind of take that risk out of choosing. The risk is always there when you put your money into venture because it can go to zero, like a lottery ticket. It could just be nothing. But some of that um, day-to-day minutia and day-to-day of like, I don't know what to, you know, if you have a hard time deciding on a menu, you might have a hard time bringing a venture. So instead of having to take the decisions, you can back syndicate members. You can go to websites like AngelList or you can go to BackstageCrowd.com and, and back us directly. You're not backing backstage. You're backing the companies that we are also backing. So we might say, uh, I'll give you an example of one that we're going to open up in just a couple of days. We, I've already um, committed $100,000 to this company and I, it hasn't been announced yet. And I also said, hey, can I get another 100000 from this founder? Can I get another 100000 allocation that you allow the syndicate members to have a piece of? And they're like, yeah, I'm raising a million dollars. I have this amount already booked. I'll give you 200000 total and you just figure out how you're going to get that to me. So I put in 100000 which is like showing the conviction. Like, I want to be part of this. Yeah. And then the other investors can invest alongside so it is, uh, yeah, if you want to do this full time, it's a whole different story than doing it as a hobby. It's very different. I would agree. And, and I think a lot of people, it, it sounds like there's strength in numbers. You have to pick intelligently, but it's hard to win with one investment. I mean, it sounds like That's know, diversifying right. is key. Yeah, diversifying is key. And again, knowing that it's rich, you, you never put in a ton of money that you can't afford to lose. You just can't do that. It's just not, the, it's, you're not going to make, you're not going to put a thousand dollars into something and become a millionaire overnight in venture. It just doesn't work. It's just, you know, it's a pie in the sky. But what you can do is have a lot of fun along the way, catalyze a lot of people, and especially in our case, catalyze underrepresented people, underestimated people. And you can have this fun portfolio, uh, just like you would in public market. This is a private market. You can have a fun, fun portfolio of 20, 30 different investments that you make over a couple of years. And you put in a thousand dollars each. So you are really kind of diversified. Your, your risk of there's a there's a risk uh, mitigation. And what if you know two three of those really do well? You you've you know, at least probably made your money back, and you can do it again. Again, this is uh, this is not. Uh, you need to talk to a CPA. You need to talk to a lawyer. You need to all the fine print. But that's what a lot of people do is they have a lot of fun that way, and and you kind of restock what you have. And in some cases you, you do better than public markets. Um, if, if you really kind of get into it and make it a, a kind of a hobby that you really get into. Right. So there's these books. You can read my book. It's about damn time. It's a great primer. You can read Jason Calacanis's book, uh, angel uh, investing. I think it's what's called. It's on my bookshelf behind me. Great book about this. And he's a syndicate lead and, and has been really helpful. Um, listen to free podcast interviews about this sort of thing, you know, there's a way to dip a toe without getting too far involved where you get scared. That's great advice. You talk about in the book, uh, there's a statement you talk about that says, um, you know, sometimes you have to write your own invitation. You don't get invited to the parties you want to get invited to. Tell me about that concept and how you use that in your business and your life. Yeah, I've, I've talked about writing your own invitation to things like I feel like you know, when I was on the cover of Fast Company, they said that I had like broken into the boys club of venture capital. And so in many ways, you know, I, I did have to kind of break in and, and invite myself. But I also now it's even involved. My thinking has evolved to like just throwing your own party. 
I'm not really interested in begging people to believe in black founders, for instance. I'm not really interested in begging people to believe that because you grew up poor, you're somehow less than someone who has money already in their family. That doesn't make any sense to me. But that's what we're expected to do all the time is just kind of have this this kind of real this reality that's fake, this new reality. Uh, and so either way you frame it, it's about saying, well, what do I want out of life? These few years that we get on this earth, uh, if you believe in, in, in the one time, I believe there's one time you get. Some people believe you get multiple times, but we all kind of agree it's usually one time in the same body, right? In the same circumstances. So you have these hundred years or so, which if you're lucky, and what do you want to do? What do you want to get out of it? And do you want to spend half of that begging people to be in, to, to join something that's inherently yours? By the way, we all have an equal share to, let's talk about the U.S. We all have an equal share to this country. Every single one of us, you talk about being an immigrant. I was brought here against my, you know, my ancestors were brought here against their will. You have people who came here looking for the American dream. You have all sorts of different people. But we, everyone who is alive today, especially if you're 60 and younger, 70, 80 and younger, everyone who is alive is, is a descendant of someone who who found their way here one way or another. And we have equal claim. We are equal inherit, uh, inheritance of this land and of this opportunity. And so why should one person have to beg the next to to uh, to get to participate in their own like their life? And I just I spend as little time as possible, especially these days. I mean, I spent so much time in the past begging and asking and wishing and hoping. Now I'm like, you know what? No, <laughs> as little time as possible. Will I, I used to, will, will I beg? And I used to have on my whiteboard from 2016 at 18 in permanent ink. We do not beg. It was the Royal week. We do not beg because I had to remind myself when you're on these individual calls with people or you're trying to make something happen. We've all been there. We're trying to make something happen and it's just not coming together that we have standards. We're vetting them too. And um, if they don't want us to be part of the party, maybe we, we, we slip through the back entrance or maybe we just start our own. Maybe we just start our own. Yeah. If, if they don't want you at the party, you're at the wrong party. You just yeah. you know, go, go find one that likes you or go create your own, which usually creating right. your own or inviting the right people is the most fun thing anyway. Right. Yeah. There's also a, a big, a uh, misnomer. I, there's many people who promote it. Uh, hustle, 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 grind, 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 hustle, hustle. And when you're not hustling, grinding, you should be hustling and grinding. Like, I don't know how many times I've seen that and heard it particularly in the startup space. And I personally hate it. I'm glad to see you do too. Uh, you talk a lot about self-care. Talk a little bit about what it takes. You certainly do have to hustle and grind to make things work, but that's not what the, that's not what life's about. Yeah, it's not. I mean, if you think about these words, especially grind, grind, if you think about grind, there's a there's a finite amount of whatever, you know, of yourself. So if you're just grinding 24 seven, it ends at some point. You ground yourself into a fresh powder. So there there's a way to do it, to grind, but to do it in, in pieces and to do it at a pace that, you know, you kind of get revved up for. You go for it, but then you take, you have to stop at some point, whether that's making sure your weekends are your weekends, or whether that's making sure that that these three hours at the end of the day don't get, uh, you're not sitting there on email still. 
And I know it make, it's made harder and more difficult by having children or by having uh, more than one job or by have, depending on what sort of resources you have to make your life more pampered. I recognize that every single day of my life, having been on both sides uh, of the pampering side of things. But there's always going to be a way, even when I was homeless, I found a way uh, of self-care, of like celebrating certain things and taking stock and, mo- and having a moment. You have to do it because if you keep grinding 24-7 and you say, I'll sleep when I'm dead, hey, you know, that's going to come much sooner than you thought. And it's scientifically proven that lack of sleep and over, you know, overdoing it can take years off of your life, just like smoking cigarettes day to day can. It's scientifically proven. So believe in science. If you care about yourself, if you care about the people around you who have to deal with you, I, I would say, you know, practicing what I preach, it's a really good idea to figure out a way to push the pause button at any time that feel that you can. And it's, again, it's not going to be easy. If you work for someone else, if you have 60 hour work week, if you have three kids and you have a mortgage, this and that, but it's about finding what works for your situation. Instead of putting an excuse in that place, put a solution in that place. The same energy that you're spending finding an excuse of why you can't do it. Please use that to find a solution. Love it. Yeah. I, I've been saying a lot recently that, don't worry, it's all going to work out because it has to. There's no other way. And so we often get caught up in you know the immediacy of the thing that we think is what we have to do right now. And I can't tell you, and trying to hustle and grind on that, not let anyone get in the way. I can't tell you how many of the most amazing moments in my life have come around when I, I gave in to letting someone else maybe dictate what I was going to do with some of my time or how I was going to a conversation I was going to have that maybe I hadn't planned or a lunch that I wasn't going to go to, but okay, I'll go. And, and you know, one of the things you said early on is that, that, that desire to connect. And to me, what I see throughout your entire career is, you know, you have a true desire to connect uh, with everybody, but you want to make sure that the people who are, LGBTQ, black women, uh, people of color, that they get the opportunity to connect as well. And I think that's amazing. And, and, and I'm glad that there are people like you out there uh, trumpeting that cause. Uh, I will do my best as I can to help continue to, to share that message as well. And uh, I really appreciate the book you have. And as we're sort of wrapping up here, um, one thing that I, uh, that I love that you said um, is you were on the cover of Fast Magazine, the first black woman, not an athlete or entertainer, which is mind blowing to me, by the way, because I never stopped yeah. to think about it. Right. I just never stopped to think about it. And so but you said that you you don't want to be the first or the only you want black women being on the covers of magazines to be a part of the norm. Help uh, yeah. help us get there. Like, what, what what can we do to help? Oh, oh I mean, just first of all, like past company had Oprah, Serena Williams, and Beyonce on before me, which, what? First of all, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. crazy. But, it, but the thing is, uh, it's, a, it's a business and tech magazine. I'm very friendly with the editor, Stephanie now, uh, Stephanie Meta, who is incredible. Uh, and much like the, edit- the new editor of Vanity Fair has figured out that this is lucrative instead of, you know, it's risky. It's lucrative to have more and more people. There's a black woman on the cover of Fast Company right now. Joy is on the cover of Fast Company right now. Uh, she's an AI specialist. And uh, but I, I did a research and I saw like, I don't know, 12 or so different business and tech magazines over the past 10 years. And maybe there were two or three black women on the cover who weren't celebrities. And if and, and, and it just didn't make any sense because there's 
plenty of white men who aren't celebrities on the covers of these magazines in the business sector, right? They're, they, they're known in niche places. So um, one of the things is like when you see those magazines, when you see those books, like my book, it's about damn time. There's also probably 10 other books and some of them are on my shelf behind me. When you see them come out, be a consumer of them, no matter what your background, because A, I spent most of my time learning from white men. So certainly white men can can learn from black women. That's just easy. But B, you're then helping to perpetuate the idea and the understanding that it is a lucrative thing. It, it, you're, you're giving them like a favorable uh, outcome. And the more that happens, you know, people were so shocked. I can't believe Black Panther made so much money. I can't believe Crazy Rich Asians made so much money. We knew all along it was going to. But now that it has, how many clones have been ordered by different uh, uh, places? So put your money into Black businesses. Next time you go to Amazon, and, and no shade to Amazon because I use it all the time, but next time you go to Amazon, think, is there a product I can instead buy from a black person directly from their website? Can I just do a, a 10 minutes of research and do that for this one time, this one thing? If millions of us did that on a weekly basis, you know how much that would add up? So that's what you want to do there. You also want to, as I touched on before, not only look at this as like, some sort of like you're doing a good deed by going and get this, you know, buying black, you're doing a good deed by reading my book, or you're doing a good deed by investing in black founders. You have to understand we are overlooked and undervalued. We're not down and out and, and, and you know, you're, you're handing us the rice to eat and we're going to make it through this, you know, turbulent storm. You are simply recognizing, hey, there's a lot of people who should have been given, you know, a platform years ago and decades ago. I'm going to be one of the people who, who like just opens that door a little bit more for them because they deserve it. it, it we're, we're equals and let's have some more fun and more competition. So learn from me, learn from other black women from these business books. There's few and far between, few and far between, but Consume and learn and then and spread the word. Word of mouth is the most important piece of a book uh, launch. And uh, it's the thing that drives books to become bestsellers. I love it. Well, the next thing you can all do here from listening to this podcast is go and buy Arlen's book. It's about damn time. So make sure you get it. Uh, Arlen, thanks so much for joining me on Now to Next. And I look forward to uh, watching your future success and uh, participating in some of it. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.